When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, as we've discussed many times, there are some remarkably compelling environments which occur in nature when rain causes rivers to overflow, you know, inundating the terrestrial environment and transforming it into an aquatic ecosystem. These transformational habitats become home to numerous species of fishes and other aquatic life as they migrate or are swept into these newly forged underwater biomes. It's a dynamic habitat. It's ever-changing as the inundation period progresses. The water level can rise as much as 10 meters, which is about 30 feet, in a given inundation cycle. Obviously, when you're talking about an influx of water of that magnitude, it's a significant event, and it impacts the terrestrial vegetation profoundly. The upper parts of larger trees in the inundated forests remain above the floodwater, while younger trees of the same species and shrubs tend to remain fully submerged up to a few months each year before the waters ultimately recede. And that's where it gets really interesting to me. We talk a lot about the leaves that fall from the trees into the water. What about those which remain on the trees during the seasonal flooding? How do the trees and the other vegetation, formerly in a terrestrial habitat, survive this inundation and provide the bountiful uh, epiphytes and macrophytes and all those kind of interesting life forms that fishes come to flourish and feed on. I mean, while submerged, the leaves on these plants are exposed to a hypoxic, which is a low or depleted oxygen, or even an anoxic, completely devoid of oxygen, environment. And yet they remain intact. After an inundation period, which can last several months, the leaves which remain on the trees appear to be capable of resuming their primary function, which is photosynthesis. And that's really amazing. One study I found determined that, and I'm quoting, at least the majority of the leaves not shed at the beginning of the inundation remain functionally capable at least when the water depth at which they remain does not exceed 1.5 meters, or about four and a half, five feet. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's really interesting. And of course, interestingly, there's other distinctions between what happens in the whitewater inundated Varzea habitats versus those which occur in the blackwater inundated Igapo habitats. Some of those in the Varzea are only lightly coated with sediment, you know, just different sediments that come from the forest floor and so forth, while some in the Agapo are covered only by spicules, which are small skeletal elements from freshwater sponges. Now, don't even get me started on freshwater sponges. That's a whole other topic that I would love to delve into sometime and love to find out more about and see, ooh, could we find freshwater sponges as a potential, you know, biome enhancement organism. Very interesting stuff. Interestingly, in a study of the leaves of around, oh, 20 different species of trees found in a Varzea habitat in Brazil, it was revealed that they possess an epidermal surface structure that's similar to, wait for it, rice plants. Of course, rice plants grow partially submerged, right? Yeah. The epidermal structure that they have permits a film of air to adhere to the surface when the leaves are first submerged at the beginning of the aquatic phase. Now stick with me here for a second. This is interesting. 
This is thought by scientists to be an adaptation by the leaves to allow them to survive underwater for extended periods of time. What this means is that gas exchange occurs between the water and the air that's trapped in the leaves. So carbon dioxide in the water can, under a sort of partial pressure, enter the leaf structure, leaf solution, and enter the leaf openings in the form of gas. And of course, what happens is they, the plants release oxygen. So this is thought to, by scientists to be an adaptation to allow them to survive underwater for periods of time. Again, in short, the stomata, which are the minute pores in the epidermis of the leaf or stem of a plant, they're protected by something. In this case, it's a heavy wax or by a covering of cells, which prevent in, you know, infiltration by water. And the trapped air in these structures permits a low level of photosynthesis to occur underwater in the presence of sufficient light. Okay, that's really freaking cool. That's amazing. And yeah, as the waters recede, this is where it gets really cool, these trees and plants not only bounce back, they continue to grow and thrive year after year. They've adapted to these seasonal cycles of inundation and desiccation, supporting the ebb and flow of life both above and below the water. So what are the implications for us as hobbyists here? Well, for one thing, it means that some terrestrial plants are quite adaptable to submersion for short periods of time. Could this be worth experimenting with in aquaria? Like doing that old urban agapo thing that I talk about all the time, starting off with a terrestrial habitat and flooding it with water for some brief period of time while utilizing plants that appear to have a waxy coating on their leaves. Maybe? I mean, I could be way, way off here, but it's a starting point, right? Perhaps those with horticultural backgrounds or simply houseplant lovers might have a lot more to bring to the table and add to the conversation than I can. In the meantime, I think this might be a good avenue to explore. Homes, apparently, there are a lot of plants that seem to have that waxy cuticle or kind of waxy coating that may give them an edge in surviving a very wet environment, if not being completely submerged. Again, I'm just guessing, but we have to do the research. It's a simple idea based on a hunch and an anecdotal observation from nature, but a good rationale for the possibility for using terrestrial houseplants in our aquarium experiments. Sort of reminds me, do you remember... That those admonitions you see in, in, in like online and in books and stuff, when you see those plants at the at the local fish store that are really terrestrial plants, and uh, you'll you hear, oh, that won't survive long underwater. Don't buy these, but somehow they're sold as aquatic plants because they can hang on for some period of time. So all of a sudden, I, I'm thinking about the some period of time underwater, and I find that fascinating because that's all we're really asking them to do. We're not trying to use them full-time 24-7, 365 as an aquatic plant, right? We're trying to use these plants for some period of time underwater, then they're dry, then they're wet, then they're dry. An interesting, interesting thing to a plant that apparently can hang on for several months, this could be a really interesting use of these plants. So we can use these types of crazy hobby culture no-nos as an impetus to explore possibilities. That's a great example of that case where, yes, they are completely right. These should not be used as aquatic plants, but can they be temporary aquatic plants in an environment that is temporarily aquatic? I think so. It's stuff like that that keeps me fascinated. It's why I've been experimenting with various grass species in my urban agapo habitats and have seen long-term survivability viability in several species after sprouting, growing, and then being submerged for a period of time and then continuing to survive as the water recedes and then just repeating the process. So again, what's the lesson here? Many trees, grasses, and plants can adapt to survive the inundation and resume their growth when the terrestrial conditions return. 
Nature strikes a remarkable balance between two dramatically different habitats. The relationship between land and water is intimate, dynamic, and interwoven, and it's really not studied in the aquarium hobby, and it really should be. There's a lot to take away here. These interesting points from scientific studies can fuel our own hobby-level aquarium work, and the experiments can be quite simple and still yield impressive and interesting results that can have a big implication for the way we keep fishes. And I think that's amazing. We favor terrestrial plants and grasses grown from seed to start this cycle, of course. So those of you who are ready to downplay the significance of experimenting with the stuff, because, you know, people have done dry start planted tanks for years. And of course, some of these aquatic plants can survive outside the water, blah, blah, blah. Take comfort in the fact that we recognize that. And I'm acknowledged that we're taking a slightly different approach with this, right? We're talking about aquatic uh, terrestrial plants going to the aquatic route, not vice versa. Which, again, makes sense. We all possess the skill set to explore this really unique avenue and to make interesting and useful observations that will contribute mightily to the body of knowledge of the captive representation of these wild habitats. And perhaps even a greater understanding and appreciation of them. You just have to innovate and be willing to do a little busy work. You can keep it incredibly simple and just utilize a small tank. But you must be patient, you must be observant, and you must be curious. There's so many possibilities here. As I mentioned in a piece back in 2019, it literally could create an entirely new sub-hobby within the aquatic hobby, not just a biotope replication, biotope operation. The idea of a 365 dynamic aquatic display, what we've dubbed the urban agapo, has never been more approachable. And you can, as the name implies, recreate it in the comfort of your own home. Did I just quote myself? Yes, I did. Damn, that was really cool. As always, turn to nature as it really is for your examples, not just for the look, but for the function. And study, replicate, and innovate from there. That's how the hobby advances. Let's hear and see about some of your experiments, your successes, your failures, your confusion, your lessons learned. Let's venture out into some deeper water, literally and metaphorically, and some new ideas. It's a big win for the aquarium hobby. Stay innovative, stay excited, stay curious, stay experimental, stay observant, Stay diligent and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.